listeners, welcome back to another wonderful episode of The Learning Curve. Of course, I'm joined by Kara Kandel, who is back with us. Last week was our first week getting things back together, and this is week two, and glad to be back in the ring of things with you. How are you since last week? Yeah, I'm well. Thank you, Jordan. Yes, happy to be back. We're reunited once again. I usually don't tell people when I'm traveling, but this time I am visiting family in my home state, which is very nice. But as you know, we're experiencing rolling power outages. But it's so cool, Gerard, that we live in this place where when one thing's down, you still have lots of options. So maybe I'm sounding a little tinny, but man, I've got a cell phone and it works. So it's kind of cool. Other than that, I hope the power comes back on because it's it's also kind of hot, Gerard, kind of hot. (laughs) Ah, uh, yeah, that is that is true. Uh, since you mentioned about power outages, I want to just give some condolences and hope you do well soon to people in southwestern Virginia and people in Kentucky whose lives have been impacted oh, my by goodness. Uh, flooding and other things going on. Because you know, many of them are preparing for back to school, and that won't look the same uh, given what's going on. Oh my goodness! And that's flooding and flash flooding at that, like between fires and flash floods, things that you can't prepare for, can't get out quick enough. It, it's horrific, and yes, my heart goes out. One life lost is one life too many, and certainly more than that for the people of Virginia, Kentucky. So, thank you for mentioning that for our listeners. No, no problem. So, what's on your read of the week? Oh, okay, read of the week. I don't know. I'm hoping I'm not going to sound like a Debbie Downer about this one, Jar, but you know, we're going through and we always have some great stories to pick from every week. And I've had charter schools on my mind a lot lately. Not just, the, I mean, who doesn't love to have charter schools on their mind? It's, you know, it's kind of how we roll people like you and I, but I came across this opinion piece by former mayor, Michael Bloomberg. Also, of course, it was published in Bloomberg News. The title of which is, Charter school change is a victory for children. So, Gerard, you will recall that a couple months ago we were talking about the complexities of the new federal regulations for the charter schools program, the federal charter schools program, and how there was this, I'm just going to say it, like just damning provision in there that would have basically prevented charter schools from opening in communities where the district schools were under enrolled. Now, why is that a problem? (laughs) I have to say, I just got a question from somebody. I was on a call and somebody, you know, yet again, made a charge that charter schools drain resources from public schools. And I thought to myself, wow, here we are like 30 years on and we still haven't busted that myth. But this provision of the proposed regulations that would have prevented charter schools from opening in communities where districts are under-enrolled is bananas in so many ways. But first and foremost, because hi, like no surprise, all urban districts are under-enrolled, like almost all of the large school districts in this country are have experienced and were experiencing enrollment declines before the pandemic, but certainly in the pandemic, as we've talked about a lot here, you know, enrollment plummeted. Interestingly, charter school enrollment was up during the pandemic, which tells you sort of about what parents wanted and what they were looking for. So the good news, as Mayor Bloomberg points out, is that the Biden administration walked back this regulation, they're taking out this under-enrollment provision, mainly because the parents and not just advocacy groups, I think it's really important to know, parents who are on charter school waiting lists in so many of these communities that would have been affected were like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And, you know, it's also just 
so blatant that the Biden administration, and I'm sorry, I'm, I try usually to be pretty neutrally political, but it's, it's just so blatant that this was about teachers unions. And we know how cozy the unions are with this particular administration. I mean, teachers union hate charters, and that's sort of all there is to it. But parents won on this little provision. But let me tell you why I'm feeling like a bit of a Debbie Downer, Gerard. I'm feeling like a Debbie Downer because I think Mayor Bloomberg is just way too sunny about this. So is this a victory for children? I don't know. I I mean, the fact that, yeah, this one little obscure regulation that, yeah, it could have definitely taken away some seats, but it's not changing the overall, A, federal hostility towards charter schools, and B, you know, hostility at the state level towards charter schools, especially when these are schools that we know so many of them are really effective for kids. And as I just said, so many of them have long waiting lists that parents and kids are trying to get entrance to these schools. So it just got me thinking, like, I think sometimes we we say, okay, we won this little battle and we take it off the list. But the federal charter schools program, that's just one little part of it. And Nina Reese, our friend who's been on the show a couple of times, was quoted in this article as saying, you know, we still need a little bit of time, not this article, but a separate one. We still need a little bit of time to see what the rest of the charter school program regulations are going to look like. Now, as a reminder to listeners, the federal charter schools program has traditionally been very important to charter schools because it helps them with startup funds. Now, why do the charter schools need startup funds? Well, because states don't fund charters equally. They certainly don't fund charter facilities equally. And here's news. If you don't have access to a building, you can't have a school for kids. Well, you can, but traditionally you couldn't have. So we're seeing more and more charters innovate in these ways, but it's a long road, right? And so it just got me to thinking, Gerard, should we, as people who care about these schools, be really happy that this one little provision was repealed? Maybe, but we certainly shouldn't like sit back on our heels and say, okay, the good work is done. And it's got me thinking a lot about how much attention we pay to federal programs and how much stock we put in federal programs. When for my money, Gerard, we should really be working a lot harder than we currently are at the state level. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we should be working hard in a time when charters have, you know, they're experiencing a lot of headwinds. Those who don't like charters, as I said at the outset, have really made a lot of these anti-charter myths stick in the American public imagination, except, of course, with those who have used and experienced charters. And I think we need to focus on a couple things. Number one, I think we need to focus on establishing multiple authorizers, especially in states where school districts are the ones that are authorizing charters, because we know that not all, but a lot of the time, school districts can be very hostile charter authorizers, and they don't give charter schools the flexibilities that they need. The other thing I'm thinking about is that we need to be working much harder at the state level as advocates for charter schools to make these schools not so dependent on federal programs. So what does that mean? That means changing the laws around how charters are funded. That means ensuring that states are giving charter schools not only equal access to facilities like, I mean, how many stories have you and I heard, Gerard, of empty public school district buildings, but nobody will share the empty buildings with a charter that has kids on a waiting list, right? We need to be thinking about these things, and we need to think about helping states fund charter facilities themselves. The federal government, charter schools came, grew out of the states. <laughs> states are supposed to be laboratories for change and innovation. And we got some of the strongest charter schools in states with strong charter school laws. And I think we need to go back to that model. I think that, you know, charter schools will barely 
on federal radar until the Obama administration really highlighted them as a success and incented states with race to the top to establish more charter schools. And here we are with President Obama's VP seemingly working with the rest of his administration to kill charters. So I think like, let's not get too excited. I'm happy that Mayor Bloomberg is excited, but the work is not done, Gerard. And so I was left feeling feisty by this story of the week, feeling feisty and thinking about mobilizing for more change at the state level. What do you think? Well, I would say you're more feisty, Frida, than Debbie Downer (laughs) on this issue, because you laid out a strong case why we should be glad but not thankful in the big picture. Really not much more than I can add to it because you hit all the right points. Something that you reminded me of is how many parents are on the waiting list to get into charter schools. Not the ones that are trying to per se just open, ones that have been open for years, they're waiting to get on. And so, I mean, that's, that's just a good reminder. And I'm also taken back like you about how many times are we gonna decide to treat charter schools differently? For example, federal funds matter a lot to charter schools. Guess what? They matter a lot to magnet schools. And the magnet school program created long before charter schools are in fact public schools. And if we took the same stance against magnet schools of saying, well, let's not enroll any new students until we fill all the traditional public school route seats. Hey, guess what? Let's not fill any magnet schools. I'm pretty sure you would hear a great deal from the uh, Magnet School Association of America, as well as their teachers. But for some reason, we don't put that kind of uh, hit onto magnet schools. So I like the feistiness, uh, Frida, this was good. Thanks, I'll take it. And I love that you said that you thought I was right. I'm going to make sure that my husband knows that later. <laughs> oh, yes, I do the same thing. You say that I'm right. I let Kimberly know as well. So, no, we, we have absolutely very have important. back on things like this. Well, my story is about a gentleman in Boston who helped build the Boston dynasty, Bill Russell. Uh, some of our listeners may not know he died recently. And there are a lot of tributes to him at this point going on from people from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to people who actually knew him as a player. And so why is he important? Well, for one reason, he played for the Boston Celtics Pioneer Institute, who we both work for and support in Boston. But it's worth noting that here was someone who was larger than the game of basketball, but used the platform of basketball to talk about public educational and social issues. A few things people may not know about Bill Russell. It's just worth noting because it says a lot about uh, his background. He was born in Monroe, Louisiana, and he was part, his family was part of that post-World War II wave of families who left the South to go to California for better jobs. He, his family makes its way to Oakland, California. As many of you know, my family stopped in Los Angeles and naturally, you know, we know that he's 6'10", but people assume that just because you're tall and black that you automatically can play basketball. I can tell you, having a lot of tall black male friends who are not great basketball players, that is a myth. And what's so interesting is when he went to high school, he was an almost cut from his team because he didn't have the fundamentals of basketball. As coaches will say, I can't teach height but give it to me, I can teach the fundamentals. And Bill Russell uh, is an example exactly of that. He found a coach who wanted to work with him. He ended up playing basketball, leading his team to two championships in California. And despite the fact that he won two championships, a lot of Division I teams weren't interested in recruiting him. Now, again, this is the 1950s. College basketball is still pretty segregated, as was not only college, but, you know, K-12 education. But in his own backyard in the San Francisco area, 
he ended up getting an offer to play basketball at the University of San Francisco. It's a Jesuit school, not known as a basketball powerhouse. During his time there, he led them to two national championships, ended up leading them to a to 55 consecutive wins. And now, of course, he's going to get looked at by a lot of uh, places, a lot of NBA teams. As we know, he moves to the East Coast, um, plays basketball with the Boston Celtics. Get this, in 13 seasons, he won 11 championships. Now, to put that in perspective. With the Celtics? Yes. I know that you have. I'm a terrible Bostonian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you. Now, remember, I'm an L.A. guy, so I love the Lakers. And so I would watch Showtime when Magic and Bird and that dynasty was going back and forth. So I hear you. There's a lot that, you know, I don't always say about the Lakers, but Bill Russell is a lesson in tenacity and a winner's mm-hmm. mindset. It's not simply because he was tall. There are a lot of tall players in the NBA for its 70-plus year history who don't have 11 rings. Their players will spend 10 years, will never win one, 13 years, 11 championships. And then he used his prowess on basketball to also, you know, challenge the system itself. Today, in the NBA franchises, there are few African-American coaches. Well, he was actually the first African-American coach in the NBA, but also he was coaching while he was a player. He used his understanding of black history and about social movements and his own story of growing up in the segregated South, going to California and making a move to talk about the importance of talking about history. He was at the University of San Francisco at a time that there were a lot of social movements in the city. Many people may not know that San Francisco State University and Harvard University were the first two universities to actually offer a course in African-American studies. Well, some of the people, in fact, who were working on that were people who were part of Bill Russell's Bay Area cohort of people who simply talked about the importance of teaching black history. And a point in American history right now where in some states that may be looked upon as critical race theory, he used that to talk Mm. about black history and American history in general. Lastly, the NBA thought enough about him to name its MVP award for the NBA champions after Bill Russell. And so a number of players, you know, moving forward, latest one, our friend from the Warriors, Stephen Curry, who won. So just worth mentioning somebody who played basketball, was larger than basketball, but had an imprint on the management and the style of basketball. And at a point where, and people will take this as they want, where some people will use sports for one lane of walking, he used multiple lanes. And more importantly, he had a winner's mindset. I can't say that about a lot of things, but he was one of them. What are your thoughts? I love that, Gerard. I love it. I just have to say real quick that as a parent of a little boy whose interest in all sports seemingly came out of nowhere, and especially in basketball, which I have never really paid attention to. I watched the Detroit Pistons for like back when Isaiah Thomas was playing, right? The first Isaiah Thomas, I know there's another one. Um, but we've been so odd to watch how he is just, he loves the game of basketball. He can tell you every stat, et cetera. But there are really rich conversations to be had with young people around the examples that these athletes who are huge role models set. And I think that I love stories of folks who really come out as leaders and change makers and can show kids that like with power, whether you ask for it or not, comes influence and comes responsibility. So I I just love this story of Bill Russell. Thanks for sharing. And just one thing to add to that, you just reminded me of something you said. He and a 
couple of other players when he was at the University of San Francisco actually went to visit Alcatraz prison. And they were one of the few civilians who the door was open to for them to go in there and talk to the men who were incarcerated. So again, long before we see that kind of work taking place here in 2020, it's something he was doing in the 1950s. So cool. Okay. Well, Gerard, coming right up after this, we are welcoming two guests, local guests, local to Boston, that is, to talk to us about a new study out by Pioneer on the METCO program. That is the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity. It's a cool, long-standing program. We are going to be speaking with Millie Arbaje Thomas. She is the president and CEO of METCO, as well as Roger Hatch. And so he, with Ken Arden, wrote this white paper for Pioneer. A lot of learning. And we'll be right back with our two guests after this. If you don't understand, let me break it down. I know that there's life outside of this town. Learning Curve listeners, as promised, we are back with Millie Arbaske Thomas and Roger Hatch. Millie Arbache Thomas is the president and CEO of the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity Incorporated, otherwise known as METCO. It is the largest and second longest running school desegregation program in the country. METCO places 3,200 students from Boston into 33 participating suburban school districts with the goal of reducing racial isolation and increasing diversity. Prior to that, Millie spent 15 years at ABCD, Boston's anti-poverty agency, supporting more than 85,000 low-income residents through its citywide network of neighborhood-based organizations. Millie oversaw neighborhood sites in Parker Hill Fenway, Mattapan, and Jamaica Plain, as well as the citywide Hispanic Center, and then served as deputy director of field operations for all sites. Big job. Millie also co-founded and served as president of the Roxbury Presbyterian Church Social Impact Center for 14 years. She began her career as a clinical social worker at Brookside Community Health Center in Jamaica Plain. Born in the Dominican Republic, Millie holds a bachelor's degree in psychology with minors in education and women's studies, a master's degree in clinical social work from Boston College, a certificate in nonprofit management from Boston University School of Management, and an honorary doctorate degree in humane letters from Emmanuel College. Millie Abarque Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Well, and now, after that amazing bio, now I have another one to read. I'm also happy to introduce Roger Hatch. He has spent a long career working for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in the areas of school and municipal finance. That is, listen, for those of you who don't have to study school finance or who don't know about it, it's actually quite fascinating. I was going to say sexy. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the learning curve, but I think I guess I just did. For 20 years, Rogers was the administrator of school finance at the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. In addition to supervising the school choice program, the office he led worked with the governor's staff, the legislature, advocacy groups, local officials, and the general public to develop, calculate, and explain the Chapter 70 state aid formula, otherwise known as the way we fund schools in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Roger Hatch, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, we're really happy to have you both. Okay, well, quite an interview with two guests, so let's just dive right in. So, Millie, I'd like to start with you. As I mentioned, your family immigrated from the Dominican Republic, and you have 
Wow, deep and varied experiences leading anti-poverty and neighborhood-based organizations in Boston. I love that you are now in education because NETCO is a parent power kind of organization. Could you share with our listeners a little bit more about your personal narrative and then talk about how that relates to NETCO's history and what it's like leading this huge program? Well, thank you so much. You know, I came to this country when I was 10 years old from the Dominican Republic. And at a very young age, I always knew that I wanted to do something to change communities. Even when I was in high school, I used to see injustices happening in my own community. And I would write letters to the local newspaper as a high schooler, you know, talking about these things and why can't the government do something about it. That really led me to this career in social work where I spent mentioned at um, Action for Boston Community Development, and one of my primary focuses there as an immigrant was that I wanted to help people become U.S. citizens, so I developed and created the first immigration clinic there to really help people get back to this country, have, you know, have immigration status to work, and to just have open opportunities. Shortly after that, after spending, you know, 15 years there, I came across, you know, the MECO program when I had children, and I was a MECO mother first. For a number of years before the opportunity to become its CEO came to me. And, you know, what fascinated me about the medical program was the deep roots that it had in the civil rights movement and how it was black parents in the Roxbury community and suburban parents who really cared deeply about racial injustices in academia, in education, and the lack of resources that existed in certain communities and the abundance of resources that existed in the other communities and how they came together with no government intervention and created the medical program. It was grassroots-led, it was parent-led, and 56 years later, we still are in existence. And being the largest one in the nation really to me means that we have a great responsibility to understand the purpose of the program, why does it still exist, why was it created in the first place, and have we actually done what we needed to do to make our education system better. So for me, it's a true honor as a mother of the MECO program, having two children that have gone through MECO, you know, to really be part of this movement, to really try to bring about some systemic change in how we view and see education. So Millie, just for our listeners to clarify, for those who aren't familiar with MECO or Massachusetts, I want to put a few things on the table and you can tell me if they are true or false. But so MECO is a voluntary desegregation program. And it's true that parents sign up like when their kids are born or when they are pregnant. That was true. So that was how I found the program when I started the job four years ago. And that was one of the first things that I actually worked to modernize when I became the CEO of the MECO program. It was a very system of applying MECO and people stayed in wait lists just too early. And then by the time it was time to make a choice for your school, it was five, six years later. You might not live in Boston anymore. You may not actually be pursuing the same educational opportunity. So right now you apply to MECO when you are the year before you become school age, but you can apply as an incoming kindergartner up until the 10th grade. So you can come in at any of those entry points, but you do have to be school age now to apply to the MECO program so that parents can make okay. it right the time that they need to make it. Okay, great to know. And then in the suburban districts that students attend and take buses to, those districts have to agree to participate in the METCO program, correct? 
Yes, and that's what I love about the MECO program because it is voluntary, like you mentioned earlier, and there's a handful of us still left in the United States, but a lot of the other programs are not voluntary, which means it's mandated, it's core mandated, and it's not the same. You don't get the same kind of feeling that you want to be part of the program and that your residents there really want less is voluntary so that's what i really appreciate about it because we're in the middle of really doing some systemic anti-racism work with the resident communities but it's because they want to do this work because they are participating in this on a voluntary basis they're not doing it because they're mandated and that's what i love about the MECO program okay great well as somebody who lives in a boston suburb i'm glad you're doing that work too because boy oh boy do i recognize there's a lot of work to be done too so before mm -hmm. we hand this over to gerard who i know has some questions for roger can you give us a sense of what a metco student sort of like daily or weekly schedule is like because a lot of people would say isn't it awful i think these kids get up and get on buses really early and they're going to these districts and are they getting the same treatment in the suburban districts that they would if they had stayed closer to home in their neighborhood school are they treated differently than the other kids in the schools that they attend can you talk a little bit about these things yeah so you know definitely the way that i would describe it is that it is a challenging process in general to be a MECO student, but it also has incredible rewards. I mean, it's challenging because you have to get up very early in the morning, like by four or five o'clock in the morning, in some cases, you have to be almost ready to start heading out the door by 5.30 in the morning to catch that bus right before six o'clock, you know, and commute for an hour to an hour and a half sometimes each way. Sometimes because of transportation constraints, you may not be able to participate on everything that you want to participate in you know, because the last bus may leave at a certain time, but a practice for that team may go longer. Maybe your parent can't go there and pick you up that late. So I've had seen, you know, barriers to these type of access to activities. So that is a challenge. But, you know, I think our districts are actually working very hard right now to recognize that in the last four years, we have been receiving medical state legislative increases in our funding. And we have been telling people that our districts, we have been telling our districts to really dedicate it to transportation and we have more additional late busing and other alternative ways to kind of get around. And again, because it's voluntary, we also have a lot of suburban friends of Mecco Group that actually volunteer to do rides as well. But that is one of the challenges and also being sometimes one of the only ones in the classroom that looks like you and really trying to find that affinity space is sometimes challenging and not being able to stay there to build those long-term friendships is something that I've seen in my own children sometimes that, you know, they can't stay behind and do that play there or that, do that impromptu, let's continue to hang out because you got to get back home to Boston. But in the flip side, mm -hmm. they are incredible because you're coming out of this with a real opportunity to have an excellent education. You're being exposed to what the real world looks like. And you have that sense of confidence as a person of color that you can walk into white spaces and be familiar with that space and feel like you can navigate through that. And that's something that you often hear from our alumni that it opened up doors in corporate America, in fields of government where they really felt like they're in a new space for the first time. So it does bring that sense of confidence. It opens up opportunities for success. And also just the understanding that this brings both ways to both urban and suburban people to really understand each other and each other's differences, not from a book, not from the media, but from each other's authentic relationships. That's amazing. Lily, real quick before we hand it over to Roger and Gerard, can you tell us, we've talked extensively on the show about some of the troubles Boston Public Schools are experiencing. So tell us really quickly, what do the outcomes for Metco students look like in comparison to where they would have attended to their peers in Boston Public Schools? 
Yeah, definitely the comparison is that our MECO students are graduating at a higher graduation rate than their counterparts of similar demographics in Boston. And another major surprise, it's even at a higher graduation rate than the state average. And the majority of our MECO students, you know, over 50% will want to college, also a higher rate than their counterparts in Boston of similar demographics. Thank you. So, Roger, Millie mentioned a few things about funding. You and Dr. Ken Arden recently co-authored a paper published by Pioneer, and it's called or titled Medco Funding, Understanding Massachusetts Voluntary School Desegregation Program. Could you summarize some of the main findings from the paper and also talk about financial lessons that lawmakers in Massachusetts and other states could learn about complex funding models for schools? Certainly. I think one of the main findings is more a reminder, a reminder that this program has been in existence for 56 years, and it just keeps chugging along. It keeps doing its thing, and there's a lot to be said for that stability. It serves about the same number of kids every year, about 3,000 plus, and the same districts are involved. So, I think the issue and one of the reasons that we wrote this paper was there's a lot of misunderstanding about the finances. And so we found that in fiscal 20, the average METCO grant, so there are two really main streams of funding. There's the METCO grants from the state. It's a state appropriation. And then also a state appropriation is the Chapter 70 state aid program, which is the state's big funding formula that gives out $5 billion to the 318 school districts around the state. So the districts on the average, the METCO districts, of which there are 37, receive $6,759 per pupil, that's the median amount, from the grant. So it's a sizable amount of money. And from Chapter 70, not quite as much. Chapter 70 is an equity-based formula, which means if you're a wealthier district, you're not going to get as much as one of the poorer districts in the state. So on average, these METCO districts, which tend to be wealthier, receive 1,976 in Chapter 78 in fiscal 21. So that adds up to a total of 8,773 for the typical METCO district. That's a significant amount of funding, but it doesn't pay the full cost. Typically, these districts are spending well into the high teens or even into the 20,000 range. It ranges from 12,717 in Melrose all the way up to 27,000 plus in Weston. It's not covering the full cost. And one of the complaints that sometimes we hear is from finance committees and even school committees and selectmen in the towns who say, well, if this is a state program, then why shouldn't the state be funding the full freight? That's a bridge too far because in those districts, local money is supporting the majority of their school funding. And so really local money is funding a share of the cost of what it takes to educate a METCO student as well. The METCO students are treated just like residents in the formula. Another concern that is sometimes raised is that Boston is losing 
a lot of money because the Metco kids are no longer being counted in its formula. Well, they're no longer being counted in their formula. That's true. They're not paying anything for them. But Boston is considered in this equity-based formula, Chapter 70, as a fairly wealthy school district. And that surprises people because they think of Boston, as most cities, as being, you know, it's a mix of wealth and poor. The fact is the formula, which looks at property value and looks at residential income, finds, and this is a consistent finding year after year after year, Boston is right up there among the wealthiest districts in the state. I'd say it's in the top, well, between the 60th percentile, roughly. And so the formula doesn't give it anything but the minimum $30 per pupil in aid. And so really when people say METCO is causing a loss of money to Boston, all they're losing is $30 per pupil. That added up to 93,360. And I should point out that METCO serves students a smaller number, a far smaller number, out in the city of Springfield in the western part of the state, in the Pioneer Valley. And the opposite is the case with Springfield, which is, by the formula's definition, clearly a poor district relative to everyone else. And in fact, Springfield would lose roughly almost $14,000 per pupil in Chapter 70 aid for every pupil that goes out in the METCO program. This would be a matter of concern, but Springfield gets a lot of its funding from Chapter 70. And so just to give you the numbers, you know, that they would have lost 1.5 million had the METCO kids stayed at home, but their total aid is 370 million. So it's not a very large chunk. And likewise in Boston, the financial implications for Boston are almost nothing. So the unstated finding in the report is that funding is complicated. So we do make recommendations for simplifying the METCO formula that gives out the grant money. Chapter 70 is a harder nut to crack. It is a complicated formula because it's trying to accomplish a difficult goal, which is to treat both taxpayers and students equitably and adequately. So there are a lot of factors that go into the Chapter 70 formula. And in my experience administering that formula, it's rare that you get someone who's really willing to spend the time to understand how it works, in spite of the fact that great efforts have been made over the years to make it simpler. So funding is complicated. I guess to summarize, keep it simple. That would be the lesson for other states looking at how to keep their school finance system sane for the average taxpayer. Absolutely. One of the interesting points from your report that I really enjoyed is the number of medical students that constitute a very high percentage of the total minority students served in suburban schools around the Boston area. And when we think about desegregation, some may use the term integration, we often hear the horror stories of suburban school system saying, hey, we don't want the kids. Well, here's one example where they've opened up their arms and yes, we want the kids to come in. How do you respond to critics who say, well, the only reason they want those children is because of the money. It's not really for the outcomes. It's not really to help families. It's just the money. 
You buy that critique? Not totally. I think the um, programmatic benefits of the program are something that almost all the districts place a great value in. As I said before, $8,700 per pupil is not uh, chunk change. That's a significant amount. But these districts, for the most part, are really well-funded. They spend far more than what is required. And so, yes, every finance committee has at least one person who's very money conscious and doesn't like to spend a dime more of local money than what is required. But for the most part, these districts are very welcoming. The fact that there hasn't been a district leaving the program for many years indicates how supportive the districts are. And so it's not just the money that's driving it. Wonderful. Millie, I have another question for you, and that is to speak a little bit to some of what Roger was talking about. You know, we've got all these success stories and stellar results about MECO, but the budget line item hasn't grown. So what are that and some of the other institutional barriers to MECO that government needs to confront? So could we spread it out to serve, for example, some of the other communities? in Massachusetts, like what we would call our middle-sized Massachusetts cities, our gateway cities. Could we do something to expand it beyond Boston and Springfield? Would that be helpful? So I just wanted to clarify that since I've gotten there in the last four years, the line item has increased in terms of the budget for the MECA program. It is now an extra $8 million from where we started back in 2018 when I got the job. So the legislators have been very perceptive to the program need to evolve, to continue to improve, to continue to make a, a deeper impact. But in terms of what has stayed the same has been the number of students served. So the number of students served has stayed pretty much relatively the same with the exception of this year, which I'm happy to say that we did talk to the legislators to see how we can expand the program internally internally meaning districts that maybe are a smaller size or have only were only serving high school or middle school and wanted to expand to the younger grades or increase their allotment. And this September, we are adding 80 additional seats in three suburban communities as a response to their own interest in expanding their own micro numbers to have a higher diversity population. In terms of expanding outside of our communities, we have began discussions around that with districts who actually have reached out to us. So after George Floyd's murder, we had at least over 10 communities reach out to me asking about the MECO program. And these interests came from both school committee members, resident members, and superintendents who said, how could I be part of MECO? And I think this is also similar to when the program last expanded in large numbers, which is after Martin Luther King was assassinated. That is when the MECO program actually doubled its size. And similarly today, people are saying have that they have they're feeling that civic duty, that the racial justice movement in this country, and they want to figure out what they can do to make their communities better. And can MECO be that solution? So we have a number of people who have reached out right now, but in order for that to happen, it would also have to take more money. We would not want to take our existing funding dollars and spread it around to more communities. We would want to talk to the legislators from those communities 
and see how the MECO grants can increase even further to accommodate an expansion of a new community. But I do believe that is a place that we need to go. That is one of my desires before I leave the MECO program as its current leader to leave the program at least expanded to newer communities. And you know, there's so many ways that we can look at this, not only communities that are close to existing ones that you know already provide transportation routes along that way, and we already go to those nearby towns. It could also mean what we're doing now, expanding the numbers are communities that could use more diversity where maybe the metro numbers are not as large and the impact is not as visible or even looking at, you know, something such as Springfield, another community where we can have another hub with an urban city such as Lawrence, such as Brockton, sending kids to other nearby communities, also reducing the amount of commute that is happening right now. Because right now we're commuting to the North Shore, we're commuting, and we're also commuting to the South Shore. So perhaps a closer hub might also help alleviate that commute. So those are things that I definitely would love to see happen. And I think this is a reason why MECO is still here. I don't think we've gotten it completely right in terms of how we're doing this business as usual. I think we have to look at how to prepare communities to come into the Metco family by doing some racial equity work and assessments to really ensure that our teachers are being trained and that we're looking at curriculum, we're looking at discipline, and we're looking at access to courses before our students enroll in a new community so that we can maybe get it a little bit better than how we did it back in the days, which is just raise your hand, you're interested. Wonderful. Well, it's really heartening to hear that such a long-standing, historically impactful program continues to innovate under your leadership. So, Milia Rake Thomas and Roger Hatch, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I know that Massachusetts listeners and those in other states are really going to benefit from having learned more about this wonderful program. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So my tweet of the week comes from a citizen Stewart. Many of you know him as Chris Stewart. It's from August 1st, and it's a reply to a video that he looked at about the Coleman Report. And the Coleman Report is one of the most influential mm-hmm. uh, federal reports to help shape what Americans thought about education, about equity, about justice. And he says that we as school reformers these days, there are a lot of doubts about some of the things we're doing. And he says, I always think it's important to trace our steps and remember how we got here in the first place. So. For those of you who know something about the Cone Report, worth the read. Some of you who may have learned about this for the first time, surely worth the read. But check out Citizen Chris's thoughts about this topic. I love it. And leave it to Citizen Stewart. You know, we haven't had a Chris Stewart tweet on here in a while. And I have to tell you, Gerard, have you ever read the whole, uh, ask you, I should say, have you ever read the whole Coleman Report? Because it's enormous. I read enough it's, it's to be dangerous home. conversations on Exactly. Now, that's about it. <laughs> as, mo- as most of us have, because it's the thing about, as a graduate student, just the thing that so fascinated me about the Coleman Report was, I think, it pushed back on me if I'm wrong here, I mean, it was the first, like, just substantial look that we had at American schools, and he was looking at schools during the time of segregation, right? And, I mean, just tomes and tomes of 
quantitative data. And I think that in interpretation, you know, we didn't always get the Coleman report right, but man, oh man, I mean, really setting the stage for what, you know, now we take terms like data-driven instruction, all this stuff like Coleman brought the data and we would do well to heed citizen stewards reminder and go back and look at some of the lessons learned. And I have to say, by the way, when I teach, which I still sometimes do, I used to do a lot more of, when I teach undergraduates or even master's students about education policy, I often get pushback that says like, oh, why? we don't need to know about history. Like, I'm not kidding. Like when people think that if you cite a paper and it's older than two years ago, that it must not be valid anymore. And I'm thinking, wow, how we undervalue the lessons we have learned, especially if you've been at this as long as we have, Gerard, you know, that education reform is just a big old pendulum swinging back and forth. We like accountability. We don't like accountability. (laughs) And here we go again. And so thank you for bringing this to our attention, that historical memory. We need to remember these things. It's pretty important. Well, we won't be talking to Chris Stewart next week, but we do have another fabulous guest, Gerard, and we will be speaking with Professor Charles Hobson, he is a resident scholar at the William and Mary Law School and the editor of the Papers of John Marshall and the Great Chief Justice John Marshall and the Rule of Law, that is, um, on his latest book. So until then, Gerard, continue to enjoy your summer. I hope that you continue to have power, too, but like all things noted, you've like recorded through legendary ice storms. I'm here during the small power outage, and we always make it to the learning curve, right? Right. Hey, that's why it's a learning curve. That's right. We're here for it. All right. Take care, my friend. Talk to you next week. Take care.